As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 71st episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm so great. I can barely contain myself. We have such a big week of things going on. Oh, my on. gosh. I know. It's so very exciting. Um, before we do the housekeeping of all the other fun stuff, this also was a really fun thing that we did. So why don't you tell everyone what this episode is? We got to interview Lee Child. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Um little peek behind the curtain i actually got to interview him twice you did uh down in cincinnati once and then the next day the one we actually recorded was at our friends at cuyahoga county public library where we do all of our live events um yeah he's really really cool he is so cool i did not know he was british so british he is so british Uh he's so british and also so tall and very tall he's very tall and i don't want to say gangly because that's not quite the right term for it that sounds like a negative but he's (laughs) He's very tall and very slender. Slender. Yeah, that's that's what you're looking for. Uh, Obviously, if you're familiar with that name at all, Lee Child wrote all of the Jack Reacher novels. Uh, There also have been two Jack Reacher movies. One of which just came out last month, I think. Yeah, last month, I believe that's true. And Tom Cruise stars in those. Mm -hmm. And we have some fun talking about Tom Cruise's height because Jack Reacher (laughs) is supposed to be six foot five. Um, much like Lee Child is right. six foot five, so, uh, but no, he he was just really great. Is one of those people who he's written twenty one Jack Reacher novels, mm-hmm. and he's so comfortable talking about the character. It's it was really fun. He's really Agreed. a great guy. So I love meeting people who you're n- never sure if they're going to be kind of like, oh, I'm a really big deal because I've done all these things, but he couldn't have been more down to earth and And he loves his audience and readers yeah he actually this isn't something you'll hear on the podcast but i found it out afterwards so during these events there's then an author book signing and he apparently like sat down with every single person who waited in line to sign a book and had like full conversations with them and all sorts of great stuff so yeah just a really awesome guy uh by the time this airs a few amazing things will have happened correct the first one i'm gonna let you talk about because it's something that our listeners can actually find online and listen to. So I'm going to give the mic to you. Okay. So this, uh, today, this is going live on Monday. Yes. Okay. Uh, December 5th. I'm like, am I talking about what I think I'm talking about? Yeah, you are. You got it. So, um, Monday, December 5th, I will actually be on the NPR show on point. Yeah, you will. (laughs) Talking about my favorite books of 2016. So it can be found, uh, it will be airing, live on monday the 5th from 11 a.m to noon Mm -hmm. and it can be found uh on the you can stream it live on the wbur website which is their boston npr radio station it can be found on your local npr listings if you look for it um yeah good times yeah and for if everyone can't find that because you're listening to a podcast right now uh just track down overdrive on facebook or twitter we will be sharing that all over the place because Jill's all grows up and she's doing a real big thing on NPR and I'm NPR. so happy. Oh, it's so exciting. NPR. So awesome. You're talk about books on NPR. Yeah, you get to talk about books and then slides of podcasts and overdrive stuff in there. I know. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna... so excited. We have nice recording studios, but this is going to be like nice yeah, recording really, really studios. Nice. <laughs> um, so that is the thing that's happening. Again, by, pe- by the time people hear this, it will either already happened or, or it's will happening, be happening today. Yeah. Uh, something else that will have happened yesterday, which we haven't done yet, but on this Sunday, so by the time everyone hears this tomorrow, 
we will be celebrating our one year anniversary of the podcast by interviewing Alan Cumming live. Um, yeah, for oh, I'm so excited. I'm like giddy. I know I'm you s- should see us, you guys, because it's a little ridiculous. <laughs> our questions are a bit absurd. Um, well, he's a little absurd in a He's good way. a little absurd in the best way possible. But uh, that will go up probably in about a week from now when yep. you all hear this. So just to recap, this episode is Lee Child, who's amazing. Joe will be on NPR today, which is amazing. And then we will be chatting with Alan Cumming, who's also amazing. Correct. Oh. That's a lot of amazing. A lot of amazing. All in one little year of our podcast. I, like we're right? right That's the other thing, too. Oh, yeah. my gosh came a long way from in a room where we didn't know what sounded like and all that good stuff to yeah here we are we're all grows up and we're all grows up um <laughs> if you want to send i know i have to say thank you to our listeners who kept listening to us yeah even I'm in the beginning with, with the horrible yeah. and even quality. now yeah and even, even now, now we know it's when, not perfect when sometimes people wander away from the mic and i don't have the heart yeah. at the time to be like get closer to your microphone we promise we are continuing to work on that so yeah. thank you we love you guys um if you want to get a hold of us you can email feedback at overdrive.com jill and i read all those we respond to all of them as soon as we can you can also again find us on facebook twitter pinterest uh, go to overdrive.com all those good things you can also find jill on npr today um Yay. we've probably said that enough times now okay I hope you guys really enjoy this episode with Lee Child. He was spectacular, and I hope you enjoy all the exciting things that we get to be doing in the next couple of weeks for you. So, uh, Jill, anything else that you would like to share? I don't think so. All right. Well, I hope you all enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Welcome you to the Parma Snow Branch here at the Cuyahoga County Public Library. We are super excited tonight, me especially, to be able to bring you such a wonderful author as Lee Child. Um, tonight we will be doing an interview type setting and he will be interviewed by the hosts of the Professional Book Nerds, um, which is one of the top ranked podcasts um, on Overdrive if you've not checked it out. The hosts are Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald. And um, just so you know, they will be recording this, and you'll be able to listen to it later in case you miss anything along the way. Now, when I heard Lee Child was coming, and I heard the minute we knew, I sent an email, and I said, please, 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 please let me introduce Lee Child. (laughs) I'm such a huge fan. I've read every book. I'm so excited. Well, apparently no one else wanted to do it. So they said, okay, Bridgen, you can introduce Lee Child. Now, I I thought about it, and I was thinking about all the things I could say, and there was just one thing that stuck in my mind. I love the Jack Reacher books. I love how he'll go into a town, and he'll be curious, and it'll lead him into something, and there'll be corruption, and he'll basically bring his own brand of justice to to the world, which may or may not be legal. But the one thing I couldn't figure out as I read these books is like, okay, so you had a question about why the town is named that, or you wanted to hear about the birthplace of someone. Why didn't you go to the library? (laughs) So I'm hoping with Lee Child's visit today that maybe we'll see Jack Reacher visit the library. (laughs) So without further ado, please welcome Lee Child. That was really, really good. That was really, really funny. Yes, as a librarian, I totally agree. Um, So, everybody. Hello. What a nice looking audience. This is a great audience. And then there's more people in our little streaming room, too. So, it's a big crowd here. Usually when we do these interviews, we um, sort of introduce... Yeah, we normally do a nice introduction for the author and say, this is Lee Child, and he, but you all know who that is and you're... Yeah, we don't need to do that. Yeah. So um, your latest Jack Reacher novel, Night School, 
just came out earlier this month. Who has read it? Has anybody read it yet? Okay. A few people. Okay. How about you sort of kick us off by telling us a little bit about the book? Okay. But first of all, let me say thank you very much to the library for the invitation. And thank to you guys for helping me out. And uh, it is a wonderful thing, um, the American library system. It is, it's kind of patchy. Some places are better than others. And this one is magnificent. And, uh, you know, I hope that you're all extremely proud of what you got here. And I hope you will maintain it forever because I'm the living proof that libraries matter. I really am. I mean, I, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was not poor really growing up, you know, not rich either. I always had food to eat and, and shoes to wear, but there was nothing else to, uh, to do. So for books, which were my absolute life, I, uh, I needed the library, which in my, I grew up in, a, in Birmingham, England, which was uh, an industrial city a bit like Detroit. And uh, it was heavily damaged after World War II. And my library that I completely depended on did not look like this. <laughs> uh, it was uh, what we called a Nissen hut, uh, and you, what you guys would call a Quonset hut, uh, on a bomb site where a church had been bombed out. And it had about maybe 400 books. And I'd read them all by the time I was about seven. <laughs> and uh, so then my mother, in an inspired piece of uh, maternal instinct, she, she signed, signed us up for the, the next library along in the, in the next kind of municipality. You took a bridge over the canal and you were in a different area and there was a different library. And that had a lot more books, so I, I, I read all of those too. And, um, you know, I was created by libraries, absolutely. My, I had nothing else going for me. My entire life was created by libraries. And it is so nice to see a really good one like this. Anyway, okay, so the question. <laughs> if you just want to spend an hour telling the library yeah. how great it is, I'm sure many people yeah. So Night School is, um, is not the book that people were expecting, I think, because at the end of the last, the last book was called Make Me. And uh, that was, a, um, I, I really enjoyed writing that book, but it just got darker and darker and darker. Um, my way of working is never to have the slightest idea what the book is going to be about or, or what's going to happen. Uh, I just let it happen in front of my eyes and just write it down as it happened. So I had no idea really what Make Me was going to be about, and it ended up very dark. It was an awful, appalling crime. And Reacher had had a head injury earlier in the book. He'd been hit in the head and he wasn't feeling great. And that combined with the bad crime uh, he was pretty despondent at the end of the book, so he did something that he has never done before. He left with the woman. Uh, normally, she scoffers quite sensibly. She realizes there's no future in this guy. <laughs> and um, she leaves, and he gets on the bus. But that did not happen at the end of Make Me. They left together. And they went to Milwaukee for a, for a three-day vacation, like regular people. And um, so then I thought, okay, God, now they're in Milwaukee together. What am I, we're going to have to figure that one out. And I imagined other people would be interested, anxious to find out, you know, what happened in Milwaukee. And so the people I expect were waiting for this book to find out, did they stay together? What happened? Was it like a classic thriller situation where she got killed and um, he had to investigate exactly what happened? Well, he won't find out in night school because... Uh, <laughs> Night School is not that book. Um, Night School is a prequel set 20 years ago um, in 1996, which to me feels like yesterday, to be honest, but it's actually quite a long time ago, and especially a long time ago in terms of our, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. It's, a, it's really about the security threat that we were first facing up to in, in 1996 which was a real big sea change because for the previous 50 years there had been the Cold War and the Cold War was understood uh, as terrible and horrible as it would have been had it happened, at least we knew who was involved, um, what would happen. It was one giant country against another giant country with fleets of tanks, fleets of airplanes, millions of soldiers. We knew the exact physical geography where it would take place. It had been gamed out thousands of times. Everything was understood about the Cold War. 
Then the Soviet Union fell apart, and the Cold War threat was over, and what came next? Something that we did not really understand. Um, around about 1993, which was the first World Trade Center bombing, then and the subsequent years, we realized we had this threat, but we didn't know who, who these people were. We didn't know where they were. We didn't know what they wanted. We didn't know why they wanted it. We knew nothing at all. And in what I thought was a very courageous move, the security apparatus actually admitted that. They said, we don't understand this. We don't know what's going on. And I thought that was a pretty brave and smart thing to do, because if you, if you pretend you understand it, then you're going to make all the wrong decisions. So they were upfront about it. They did not know what was going on. And they actually themselves labeled their policy running around with our hair on fire. That was the policy. And so that's what this book is about, that era, that period when the threat was completely not understood, where everything had to be treated with the same kind of uh, importance because you just didn't know. You didn't know that this thing was important, but that thing wasn't important. You just had no clue. So everything had to be looked at. And um, so the book starts out with somebody has overheard an intelligence asset in Hamburg, Germany, overheard a single sentence from a, a Saudi courier who said, the American wants $100 million. For what? Nobody knows. From whom? Nobody knows. What, who the American is? Nobody knows. But they have this piece of intelligence, and they've got to do something about it. So that's what the book is about, set in that period, which, again, to me seems really recent, but actually was a long time ago. Do you remember we were all really worried about the millennium? What was the millennium going to do to computers? As 1999 changed to 2000, were they all going to stop? And people were really worried about that, remember? My wife made me go and get $1,000 out of the bank, <laughs> just in case the ATMs wouldn't work and all this kind of thing. Um, of course, it all passed off without any incident, but beforehand, people were kind of worried about it. And you mentioned uh, the, your writing style is a bit unique. You write sentence one, and then you go from there, and you kind of discover the story in real time. And you've now done this 21 separate times with this character. So how do you keep timelines and dates and all these things straight while you're going through the process of, of writing one of these stories? Well, I, I, really, I, um, I really try and base everything that I do as who I am as a reader. Because I think that's the only thing you do. I mean, we're in, we're in this business to please readers. That's the only reason we're doing this. And so the best way to figure out how to satisfy a reader is to remember, well, wait a minute, I am a reader. I'm a reader myself. And in fact, all writers are readers much more than they are writers. Uh, I write one book a year, and I probably read 300. And so I'm far more of a writer. I mean, as a, I'm far more of a reader than a writer. And so it's easy enough to figure out, what do I want from a book? And um, what I want from a book is, is uh, just that I, I don't want a sort of predictable storyline where you, where you kind of know what's, what's going to happen. And I feel that if the writer has planned it out to the point that the writer knows what's going to happen. Does that kind of leak through in some way? Does that take away that um, the sheer shock and joy of random discoveries and random twists? I would think it would have to, because I've done, you know, in some of my books, something's occurred to me literally in the moment that, wow, that's a great idea, or that's a great twist or something. And I would be thinking, if I had an outline or a synopsis, I would be somehow inhibited from doing that. You know, maybe my brain wouldn't even be going there because I, I, I know the path I'm supposed to be on. And uh, would I therefore just not, a, not have that idea? And of course, the book might be better with an outline. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, I just really what I want to do is I'm, I'm sure everybody has the same experience and really loves it. And it doesn't happen often, sadly. but. You can have a book, you can be reading a book, and you're just so annoyed if you have to put it down. Uh, or you get home from work, and you're just so happy to pick up your book and think, wow, what's going to happen next? That's the feeling I want when I sit down to write. I sit down and think, wow, what's going to happen next? <laughs> I really love that. 
feel like I need to interject. You say you read about 300 books a year? Yeah, easily, yeah. <laughs> you did just say that easily. in passing. <laughs> that, that, that's a, throw it that's out an there. amazing number. Well, there are 365 <laughs> days in a year. <laughs> you put it that way, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I, you know, seriously, it's a big part of writing. Stephen King says, Stephen King says, he's, you know, you should have an eight-hour day, four hours writing and four hours reading, and um, you know, it's it's a responsibility. You've got to read, and yeah, I read all the time, and I always have, and I love it. You are the third author we have in, uh, interviewed who has mentioned Stephen King. Sensing a theme. Every, everybody it's almost like he's a big deal in the literary world or something. <laughs> yeah, who is that guy? Just a yeah. little bit. So with this book being set 20 years ago, like you said, um, what was sort of the difference in your writing process? You know, did you prefer writing in the past versus present day? Um, I can't, I mean, I don't know that I prefer it because out of 21 books, only three of them are prequels. So that is, you know, it's a relatively small fraction. And... I really, there, is a, there, are, there are a couple of challenges. One is that you've got to think your way back into how it was in 1996. And, um, you know, that's memory, partly, and it's sort of thinking about all the things that we worried about. Uh, like I said, you know, that computer thing and the millennium. In the history books, presumably, that's just going to be a footnote or a little paragraph saying people were worried but nothing happened. But the, the point about history, history is facts. You know, we look back at these facts. And at the time, they were not yet facts. You know, they hadn't yet achieved the statement of facts. What now looked like facts were then just feelings. So you've got to be able to think yourself back into the feelings of, of the era. And as far as a, a series with a, with a repeating character goes, it's a, it's a fun challenge to go back and instead of making him a little older and wiser each time, um, you jump all the way back and make him younger, um, you know, maybe a little more optimistic, maybe a little more energetic. I mean, 20 years ago, I was certainly more energetic and more <laughs> optimistic, generally. You're a little more naive, maybe. Um, and it, so it's a lot of fun to take a character back and uh, sort of show an earlier snapshot something that doesn't really change, regardless of which book it is with Jack Reacher, is he has a very clear-cut um, understanding of right and wrong. He sees it as black and white, and it's a situation where he, you know, maybe the, end, maybe the ends justify the means, but he always understands good versus evil. Do you think he could survive and exist in the real world that we have today with so many kind of shades of gray and so many questionable decisions that people make that they say, oh, well, it may hurt a few people, but it's going to help a much larger population. Well, you know, th that's a good question in as much as it's sort of part of that extremely hard black and white pragmatic approach that, that Reacher has, uh, you know, not to get too technical or political about it, but people talk all the time about drone strikes as if drone strikes are a really bad thing. And um, I think Reacher would be perfectly happy to say, all right, we killed 10 people in some land, you know, Pakistan or whatever, 10 completely innocent people. That's bad, but it's a lot less bad than sending huge armies over there and killing 100,000 people. And so I think Reacher would be extremely pragmatic about that and shed no tears over it. Um, as I think the moral code thing is, is what makes Reacher so popular, frankly. I think that and I think the key to that is that actually everybody agrees with him secretly. Um, I think that people's, people's basic nature, you know, look around you. People in America especially are, I mean, there are some real weirdos on the fringes. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's state that up front. But the huge mass of people in the middle are full of goodwill. They're full of kindness. They are just thoroughly nice people. And they would always like to do the right thing. It's a basic human instinct. You want to do the right thing. But most of the time, we can't do the right thing because either we're inhibited in some way or incapable in some way or physically not up to it or uh, bureaucratically it's impossible. You know, Maybe the injustice that you see is at work and if you did anything about it, you'd be fired. You can't afford that. Um, so for a huge number of reasons, people want to do the right thing, 
but are generally prevented from doing it. And that produces a kind of low-level, miserable frustration in their life where everything's, a, you know, you've got to be biting your tongue all the time. And so people love to see it in a book where the guy does the right thing, come what may. He will, he will do what you want to do on the page, which is the point of fiction. The point of fiction is to get what you can't have in real life. And you certainly see that in romance um, stories, you know. <laughs> Where, where I used to live, where I used to live in New York, I've moved now, but I used to live on 22nd Street, and on my block were two model agencies. So I can guarantee any time I, I went out of my building and got on the subway, I would be sitting across from some stunning 19-year-old Russian model. And, of course, in real life, there was no way I was going to talk to her. There was no way we were going to have dinner that night. There was no way we were going to fly off to the Caribbean and have sex all weekend. <laughs> it was just not going to happen, but it could happen in a book, you know. And, that <laughs> and that's why we love books. And the, and the other thing about Reacher, and this is something that is, that everybody shakes their head at because they're too polite and too civilized to admit it, but in a crowd like this, certainly too polite and too civilized, but I, I know the truth which is that everybody has a list of 10 people they would cheerfully shoot in the head. <laughs> I know you all do. And uh, of course you're not going to do it for excellent reasons, but you have that list, and Richard does it for you, you know. And so you like the guy. That's what it is. It's really hard not to sit up here and like furiously nod in agreement in front of a bunch of people and like, let myself be revealed there. Yeah. Um, so this is your 21st Jack Reacher story. And, and with the volume that large, it would be super easy to kind of fall into a trap of a, of a formulaic story. But your books aren't like that. Like, how do you keep Jack Reacher and his, and his world so fresh and new with each new book? Well, to a certain extent, the... Um, to a certain extent, the no formula thing is a formula. You know, Reacher um, is, is not like other series because there are plenty of other series that are, and, and always have been, and I love them, and there is some, ex some excellent work being done, but virtually every series is a soap opera where it is a story that is based around a location or an employment, and the main character, therefore, has a home and a neighbor, uh, maybe a dog, maybe a girlfriend, maybe a teenage daughter that won't talk to him, maybe, um, and then at work he's got superiors, he's got colleagues, he's got underlings. And so the stories all develop within that universe. And I can kind of see, sure, that doing 21 books in the same tight universe would, be, would feel formulaic and would feel maybe a little restrictive. You know, if he, was a, if he was a cop in Chicago, then it would now be 21 books about cop things in Chicago. And I think that could feel a little limiting. But Richard, of course, has no job, uh, no home, <laughs> no friends, <laughs> no dog, um, no nothing. Richard is a completely free and independent spirit. He can go anywhere, literally, and do anything, literally. And that gives me tremendous scope and freedom because his past is uh, plausible that he can get involved with high-level stuff. You know, he can talk to the FBI, he can talk to the Pentagon, he can talk to the White House or whatever. Uh, his background makes that plausible. It's equally plausible that he can just wander into some town and it's all lonely and dusty and he never speaks to anybody who's more important than the librarian. <laughs> and so... And actually, Richard does talk to librarians. There's one book, I think it's one shot, where he needs information, and there's a whole paragraph about how... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's an actual sort of uh, tribute, a whole paragraph where he goes on and on about how helpful librarians are and how essential they are. <laughs> so uh, Reacher is fully, fully in tune with libraries. That's what it is. So you mentioned... Jack doesn't have a home or friends or really no use for technology. So how long do you think you could survive with that 
nomadic lifestyle that he leads? I could survive a real long time. It would be fine. I think it's tiring. Um, being a nomad is tiring because you're forever on the move. You, you can never just sort of sit and rest. You know, you've got, never got any familiarity or comfort. Um, so it is. It wears you out. But yeah, I, I could totally live like that, and I often have, and I sometimes do just for the fun of it. I take long trips and. Um, I love seedy motels. I love disgusting food. Um, <laughs> I, c I can manage fine, you know. I, I mean, a long time ago, I rem this is a long time ago, so the money thing isn't really significant, but I, I once went to, I had a six-week European um, vacation for four pounds, which was six dollars at the time. You just, you know, eat restaurant leftovers or you bum stuff off people, meet girls, they'll buy you dinner, uh, sleep on the beach. It's fantastic. <laughs> hey, you're really selling that, actually. Yeah, I was say, it does sound really, it sounds, that sounds wonderful. So I'm, I'm sure, as most of the audience is aware, the second Jack Reacher movie opened last week. Have you been involved in the process in any way of creating the movies? Um, not in the, not in the sense of you know I, no artistic contribution from me for the movie at all, and certainly no legal involvement, no contractual involvement, no veto powers, no approval or anything like that. Um, I hasten to point that out because <laughs> uh, just in case there are people with uh, dissatisfactions about them, you know, although it isn't, it is actually entirely my fault. Uh, it was a thing, and I'll explain why. Long answer, if you can bear with me. It, it's um, uh, there was the deal. The deal for the for this particular, you know, this particular deal was done in in 2005, which is now what 11 years ago, and um, they they didn't get around to uh, starting to make the first movie for six years. That started early in 2011. They started that planning. And in, in that interval between 2005 and 2011, the book series had gotten bigger and bigger so that it wasn't just buying a sort of literary property, they were sort of buying into a series that a lot of readers loved by that point. So they needed me to be, to be happy about it, so they constantly were consulting me and telling me and calling me all the time. And in March of 2011, I got a call saying, uh, we're flying to New York and we want to take you to dinner. Um, and I knew that they were going to tell me about the casting. It was just the right time, you know. It was the time when the casting was going to be the issue to be discussed. And um, I knew from the restaurant that they had picked, because uh, <laughs> it was a super expensive restaurant, <laughs> I knew they were going to tell me it was Tom Cruise. If it had been some other actor, they'd have taken me to a cheaper restaurant. <laughs> So uh, I get in there and, uh, you know, we make small talk for a little while and I say, um, all right, come on, guys, it's Tom Cruise, isn't it? And they said, yes, it is. And I, I sensed that I had like half a second. If I had thrown an absolute fit, if I'd thrown a hissy fit at that point, I think they would have canceled the whole thing. Um, but I, would, I thought, well, why not, you know? Um, because here's the thing, I honestly didn't care. Because for me, the book is the product. The book is the only product. A lot of the times I say the book is the main thing, but that's, it's even beyond that. The book is the only thing. The book is the definitive product. And nothing, there's, there's no power on earth that can alter the book. Uh, the book is what it is. The book is the truth. The book is, is, is what I say it is. Uh, Reacher is as in the book. And a movie has no power to alter that in any way. And I was kind of naive, I think, about that people would... I didn't expect people who loved the books to care about the movie, to be honest. I thought, if you love the book, why even go and see the movie? <laughs> <laughs> you know the story. <laughs> you know who did it. <laughs> you know everything about it. You know, why would you want to see... Uh, and then I sort of understand, yeah, you would like to see some other person's opinion of it. I, I completely understand that. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to see somebody else's opinion of it. And, but if you don't agree with the opinion, then you just say, well, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. What I, you don't sort of get mad about it. The book is the book. The book will always be there. 
Um, none of the words will ever change simply because there's a movie at, at the movie theater. So I was very relaxed about it. They could have had Katie Holmes playing Jack Reacher as far as I was concerned. <laughs> so um, it did sort of take me by surprise a little bit. And, um, but what I really want the movies to do, of course, you know, talking as a completely cynical author, what I want the movies to do is somebody in Brazil or Indonesia or China who sees the movie then buys my books. You know, that's what I want. And so in that sense, when somebody says to me, you see, you hear the question differently. If, if somebody says, uh, can we make a movie of your book? What I hear is, can we spend $120 million advertising Jack Reacher around the world? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. By the way, I think Katie Holmes might be taller than Tom Cruise. Yeah. That's very possible. <laughs> Thank you. I was hoping that would get a reaction. You um, know, he, and he, the, the sweetest thing about this whole thing, he totally knows this, you know. <laughs> he completely knows, because he likes the books. That's why he bought the property. He likes the books. He totally knows he's smaller than Jack Reacher. <laughs> and um, in fact, in the, first, in the first movie, you know how they shoot multiple versions of scenes sometimes, just so that they can have wiggle room for editing and this and that. Th there was a scene in the first movie where Reacher gets uh, picked on in a sports bar and has to go outside and fight five guys. And they shot a version where Cruz gets outside and the five guys are lined up against him and he goes, what? What, you were expecting somebody bigger? <laughs> <laughs> so all that being said, you did have a cameo in both of them. So what, what was that like for you to kind of become an actor in your own creation? Well, my mother always said you should always have something to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved it. It was because prior to being a writer, I worked in, in television. And that is like the first cousin to movie making. And I, you know, I knew. I'd been on a million film sets. I knew how they, they felt, it, I, I, and I enjoyed it very much, and it was really nice to get back into that world as a, as a sort of, uh, just as a guest. It, was, it felt warm and welcoming, and it was good fun. Um, but the cameo was, you see, the thing that I will always forgive Hollywood for is that they are all nuts. Of course they are, but... <laughs> They really just care so much about making the best possible movie. I mean, I guarantee you, everybody wants to make the best possible movie they can. And they're obsessed by story. They love story. It was very significant to me on the first movie. Everybody had young kids. Um, and all the time I was there, they would be... Uh, you know what it's like when you're working away from home and you're not seeing your kids. You try and call them every day. And every one of those phone calls would devolve into a storytelling session. Whoever it was, the dad or the mom, wouldn't just be talking. They would, it would become a storytelling thing. And in reverse, they would use their kids' reaction to stories as critiques, um, you know, finding wisdom in what the kids were saying. It was quite interesting. One of, one of the actors was relating this story. He'd been reading a book to his kid. And the kid had said, but who is this story about? And, and the, everybody was taking that as the most profound thing. You know? And in a way, it is a profound thing. And especially in a movie, very quickly, the audience has got to understand, who is this about? And so anyway, I, I was uh, at home, and I got a call from, from Tom Cruise, who said, there's a scene in the movie where reaches in jail overnight, He's released in the morning, and the desk sergeant at the police station has to process him out and, and give back his possessions. Those of you who have spent the night in jail will understand the process. <laughs> and so, and Cruz said, I really want you to play the desk sergeant because it will be symbolic. It's a story within the story. Not, you know, the policeman is giving the suspect his stuff back, but the book writer is handing the baton to the movie actor, the baton being the toothbrush, um, somehow judging him, somehow releasing him, somehow sending him on his way. And um, so it was indicative to me, you know, they take this so seriously to see symbolism in that scene. And then the same thing for the second one. Uh, Reacher has to get through the airport with a phony driving license. 
and I'm the TSA officer, so I'm face-to-face -face with crews scrutinizing the license, and I say, bah, whatever. Again, sim symbolic. The writer judging the actor and saying, all right, you'll do. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Given how huge your fan base is with these books, in knowing they're constantly wanting a new you know, book in this series, have you considered where the ending will be eventually, or are you kind of leaving it all open? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those questions when, it's like when you're 19 years old, you say, oh, sure, I, I don't mind dying at 30. And then you get to 25 and you say, yeah, 40 is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, right now I'm saying, yeah, 75 looks pretty good. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those things. And I used to have for no reason at all, really, other than a sort of vaguely theoretical thing. Back in the day, when, when I was sort of five or six books in, people would say, where do you see this ending? And for some reason, I just said, I'll, I'll stop at 21 books, which is this book. And, uh, and then I would dress it up a little bit, and I'd say, the last book, the 21st book, is going to be called Die Lonely. <laughs> and... It'll require some ingenious plotting because Reach is a smart guy, but it'll be uh, the end, end scene of the book, Reach has got a choice. He either gives up the person he's protecting or he gives up himself. And obviously, Reacher being Reacher, he'll give up himself. And so the final scene of Die Lonely, he will crawl into a filthy motel bathroom and bleed to death on the floor. And I would judge by the volume of the groans <laughs> um, how people felt about it. You know, I was hoping to hear groans, and if you hear groans, you think, good, you know, you're doing, you're doing, the, you're doing good, people want more. If somebody had, if, if everybody had said, yeah, that's fine, <laughs> I would have known, oh, all right, they don't, they don't really care. So, um, but then, uh, again, thinking as a reader, one, one loves characters, you know, characters are great, and happily, people really like Reacher, and so I took a, a preliminary decision that actually the last book he would not die because that was just too cruel. You know, I thought it was too gratuitously upsetting to the people that, that have liked him all these years. So I thought, well, I'll work out an alternative ending where maybe he, uh, instead of getting on the bus at the end of the book and, and drifting away, maybe he stays in town. Maybe he rents an apartment. Maybe he finds a stray dog. Um, you know, a subtle ending. And then I took a, another decision, maybe, maybe it won't be 21 books, maybe it'll be more than that. And um, so the Night School is book 21, and um, there are another three at least that I signed up for, so we shall see. There was such an uncomfortable chuckle when you said 21, and they're like, oh wait, I'm doing the math here. Um, okay, we have a million more questions we could ask, but there's a lot of people here, and I, we actually have another room of people that are watching the stream. So uh, if you have questions, maybe we could get the lights up just a little bit so you could see. I believe we have some runners with microphones. If you want to stand up, maybe we can get some questions from our audience. Hi. Uh, do you actually visit the places you write about where Jack Reacher ends up? Um, generally speaking, yeah, I do, but not for the purpose of, of writing the book, uh, because I believe that uh, a book a year is not a terrible schedule. It's not a particularly arduous schedule, but it's, it's, it's a, a year, I think, is too short to, to really absorb the kind of research that you need to do. First of all, you've got to do the research, and then you've got to figure out what part of it is significant, what part of it is telling. Uh, what part of it is irrelevant. And it can take a few years to, to really get that impression. So I kind of do it in reverse. I'll be somewhere, and it'll make an impression. I file away that impression, and it can be years later that it pops up in my mind as, yeah, that would be a great place for the way this story feels like it should be. So it's all done kind of in reverse. Although that's a luxury I have now, because obviously I, I am a writer and I can travel, but... The first book, uh, Killing Floor, was written about Georgia, and I had never been to Georgia at that time. I figured, I, my research for that book was watching My Cousin Vinny. 
was, was actually about Alabama, but I figured, ah, what's it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, people are, that was a necessity, you know, I couldn't do it. I, I must say that then, then for the second uh, book, Die Trying, was set in, mostly in Montana, you know, in the Northwest. And because then I was at liberty to, uh, to go there, I did. I went, I went there to see what it was like. But the real problem with that was it was exactly what I thought it was going to be like. Uh, and so that rather sort of took away the point of doing contemporaneous research, I felt. But the Georgia thing was people are so generous and uh, in a way tr people trust some written information. They just do. If you put it down in black and white with, with aplomb and confidence, people trust it. You know, people from Georgia love Killing Floor. And I said, yeah, but, you know, is it like, is it did I capture the place? And, the, and they generally say, well, it's not, it's not exactly like that where I live, but I assume it is somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so, generally speak, and there's a really serious point about especially location and cultural research, which is that accuracy is a bad thing. Accuracy gets in the way. Plausibility is much more important. Uh, and the example I always give is, obviously, I come from Britain, and therefore I could write a novel about London that would be completely accurate. But my feeling is the more accurate I made it, the less plausible you would find it. Because the issue here is not really what is London really like, it's what do you think it's like. And if I present a version that's different than your deeply held ingrained beliefs, you're going to think, this guy's never been there. <laughs> and so it's always that balance between, yeah, accuracy is nice, but plausibility is much more important. Kind of along those lines, we actually have a question from the room watching the stream. Uh, will you ever set a Jack Reacher story in Ohio? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that even though it, One Shot was, was basically set in Ohio, even though it, it was not named, for some reason I wanted to, I didn't want to distract uh, for, by having a totally specific location. What I wanted to do was just have a, a kind of heartland feel, you know, the feel of, uh, the feel of this part of America. And so, I based it basically on Cincinnati, and um, so Richard has been to Ohio. You can absolutely guarantee that he's crisscrossed this state in and out <laughs> all the time. Because the other thing that people forget is that uh, you know these books are only about one week of his year. You know, um, people say, "Isn't it a coincidence that once a year something really bad happens to him?" and <laughs> And I'd say, yeah, kind of, but you know, the, <laughs> the other 364 books that I write about him, the publisher won't publish, they're too boring, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> so on one of those days, he could have been here, he could have been in this very library borrowing a book. <laughs> There's one way uh, up there. Oh. Right up oh. And I got the mic. <laughs> um, as a reader, you know, in the beginning, Jack Reacher was comparable to Superman. So, you know, he'd walk outside the bar, he would kick six guys' asses. <laughs> then I've noticed kind of a trend where he becomes more vulnerable, where a midget almost beats him up, where a mother and daughter almost, you know, kill him. And I'm wondering, is that a, a trend that we're going to see I think you've got to be fair to the poor old guy. Um, <laughs> the mother and daughter, I mean, he did actually kill both of them. Um, and he was a little tired beforehand because he just also killed 19 of their henchmen. So, he, you know, he's still in pretty good shape. I, uh, but it's a serious point because uh, con conflict is, is, the, is the essence of any great story, uh, one thing against another thing. And um, the real, you know, the greatest conflict paradigm ever is David versus Goliath. And I just had this idea, suppose Goliath is the good guy. Um, is, is that boring? You know, is that inherently boring in as much as if he's unchallengeable? 
if, he's, if he always wins, is that boring? And I thought, well, it might be, but I like it. You know, I would like, I would like to always win. Um, I don't, as a sports fan, I don't particularly like nail biters. I like a perfect, you know, an absolute blowout where, where my team slaughters the other team. I like that much better. And so I wanted Richard always to be utterly dominant, but I also wanted him to be, you've got to have him troubled or under pressure at certain times. And so to a certain extent, uh, and it runs counter to, to a lot of entertainment. And frankly, that's what took so long for, for the movies to really get going was that the Hollywood paradigm is this thing where you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, and then you win in the end. That's what they love to see. And I've got a friend and a fan who is in the pro wrestling world, w which you will be shocked to hear is heavily staged and rehearsed <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> even, to, even to the point where they, they have story conferences, they sit down and decide you know, how the bout is going to go. And they also stick to this rule that you know, the good guy and, um, and my friend is the good guy, which means that he's going to get beaten to, you know, beaten practically to death until the very last minute where he wins. And I thought, let's try and do it somewhat differently. Let's have Richard dominant throughout. But the, you've got to put him under a little pressure here and there, so he comes close to being in danger some of the time. But the vulnerability thing, we're not going to go too far with that. You know, he's not going to become vulnerable. He's certainly not going to become sensitive. And uh, he's, uh, he's not at all interested in uh, organic greens or veganism or anything <laughs> like that. So he's going to basically stay the same old guy. Um, this is another question from the room. How do you know so much about the military? Well, I mean, that begs the question, do I really know that much about the military? <laughs> I think to a large extent, uh, there are certain basic things. I think armies have been the same ever since the Romans. You know, the, the experience of the common soldier is pretty much unchanging over the years. And the US military in particular is, um, is gigantic, or historically was all over the world. It was highly visible. Um, it did not take uh, great pains to hide its light under a bushel. It has you know, a press room, it has a PR department, all this kind of stuff. There are a million movies and books and TV shows about it. So it's really, it's easy enough to find out specific details and then you've got to infuse it with, this, with the feeling. And I think the feeling um, of, uh, the feeling of being in the, in the military is something that is fairly unchanging, I think. Um, and I, I depended a lot on my father's stories from, uh, he was in the British Army in, during World War II. And um, he, uh, his stories, I mean like a lot of that generation never told any specific horror stories about what, was, what had happened, but he, he was utterly fascinated by the way that the internal military culture was so radically different than civilian culture. Uh, he was a totally uh, normal, very respectable, really quite repressed and conventional man. But inside the military culture, you would do things that would be completely unacceptable outside of it. And he had, he had no problem doing it inside. He was horrified afterwards, and he was forever interested in that, in that balance of what, it, you know, what was good here is bad there. And so uh, you pick up on the flavor of things like that. In the corner. Uh, I want you to know in your honor I bought these clothes a week ago and, uh, and I'm not wearing any underwear. CMI, <laughs> <laughs> my friend. Um, a lot of thriller authors and series authors are uh, moving along and they have the same character over and over and we all know who they are and the author dies. Have you picked your successor? <laughs> That's kind of morbid. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, well, technically speaking, have I picked my successor? Um, I have not, and that would be down to my literary executor, uh, which is nobody, because I, I, haven't, been, I haven't been that organized to, to make a separate literary section in my will. 
And so uh, the decision would be made by my daughter, who is a, the sweetest, sweetest, most wonderful woman, but a very practical girl. And she would say, well, who's going to pay the most? <laughs> and I would like my brother to do it. Um, my brother's also a writer, Andrew Grant. And um, he, you know, obviously he and I share some DNA, and I think we're, we're very similar, and I think he'd be really good at it. And he is also much younger than I am, so chronic, you know, actuarially, he might stand a chance of getting it. <laughs> <laughs> There's one over there. Go ahead. Hi, good evening. I want to thank you and uh, the Cuyahoga County Library for making your books available on audio. And you've kept me awake for the last 15, 20 years, very uh, <laughs> many long miles. And I just want to say that I hope you can keep Dick Hill continuing to narrate and uh, talk about... Uh, so a question for you is, some of the most enjoyable parts of your books are the fight scenes. So you spend six to eight pages describing in minute detail of Reacher's thinking, logical thinking, laws of physics, etc. And the movies actually don't do justice because those six to eight pages are 30 seconds. And uh, the question for you is, have you been in many fights yourself? <laughs> and uh, where do you derive the, uh, the, the scientific basis for the fights? Yeah, well, thanks for, about the audio. I will, uh, I will tell Dick what you said. We've, you know, we've been together 21 books now and uh, have become good friends. And um, the history of the audio book was that for the first 10 books, it was with a company called Brilliance Audio, which was an independent audio producer in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then after 10 books, um, Random House really, really wanted the audio rights. Um, so I had to take them from Brilliance and give them to Random House, but I, I said the only condition is that you keep Dick Hill as the reader. And, and they did, which is great. And for the fights, they are purely from memory. I've been in every single one of those fights. <laughs> 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 I, I, um, like I said, I grew up in Birmingham, England, which was a pretty rough, tough, industrial city, and it was a long time ago, and violence was all there was. That was the only kind of normal cultural response to anything, um, and as, especially because my parents were very aspirational for us. They wanted us to do well. They wanted us to do well in school and get good jobs and all that kind of thing, which if you are the kid of an aspirational parent, in that kind of a culture, you have a huge target painted on your back. And it got even worse when I went to, in Britain, you do, you, you, there are two types of school. Primary school, which is basically what you call elementary school, and then you go to high school, which is seven years from the age of 11 through 18. And um, I got a scholarship to a really fancy uh, high school on the good side of the city. Uh, this school, was 224 years older than the United States. Um, it was one of those English, you know, classical English educations. And so therefore, if you go there, you've got an enormous day glow target painted on your back. <laughs> and twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, I would have to fight my way out of the neighborhood and then back into the neighborhood. And I loved every second of it. I was really good at it and I, um, I, I enjoyed it, and I, I do. I think back to those moments. Um, that scene where he fights five guys on the sidewalk, that was a specific day. I remember it well. I was nine years old. Uh, my great aunt had come up to visit, and she, in that kind of hierarchical old world society, she, she was one of the senior matriarchs in the family. So she came up to visit, which was like a huge honor and uh, my mother was all, you know, very strict about it. And she, I remember that day she gave us clean clothes to wear because we were going to meet the great aunt. And I was due to be at the, at the library um, <laughs> at, in the little Nissan hut to meet the two of them right after school finished. And uh, so I set off and I was hurrying to the library to meet them. And to get to the library, you had to go down this narrow alley. And in the alley were these five kids um, with the ringleader. I can still remember his name, and I hope he isn't here tonight. <laughs> his, um, 
or I hope his lawyer is not here tonight. His, uh, he was called Douglas Cooper, and they were strung out across this alley, and, I thought, I, and immediately you know what's going to happen. I mean, immediately you know. There's no point in having a conversation about it. And my first thought was, oh my God, I'm wearing clean clothes. <laughs> And, you know, that is rule one. You, you should never fight in clean clothes because your mother's going to go apeshit. <laughs> Especially with the great aunt there who's going to be all, all disapproving if you, if you show up with blood all over you. And so that was my number one problem, how to do this without disturbing my clothing. And so I just figured it out as I went along. You hit the main guy first extremely hard, and then two others will join in and... The, the final two will run away. And um, it worked, and, and that's great. But then I, I calmed down a lot since I haven't had, the last, seriously, the last physical fight I had was about four years ago. <laughs> and the one before, I mean, twice. I, yeah, four years ago I had a fight, and then one time somebody tried to mug me in the bathroom at O'Hare. And uh, that didn't work out all that well for them. <laughs> and then before that, there was a guy who tried to mug me in San Francisco. You remember when I said I had more energy 20 years ago? So we would be, on a t we'd, we'd be sent on these tours. And you know, you'd do an event like this, and then you would finish it with maybe 10 or midnight or something like that. Back then, I would be in a city that I'd never seen before, and I was full of enthusiasm and energy. So I would go out to explore the city you know, till 2 or 3 in the morning. And but of course, because it was an early tour, they hadn't put me in the most prestigious of hotels, and it was right on, right on the edge of the Tenderloin in San Francisco. So I went out to explore, and naturally enough, somebody tried to mug me, and um, that was, again, a spectacular result. I took all his money. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it to the, the next homeless guy I saw. So yeah, the reach of fighting is entirely autobiographical. <laughs> well, I know there's a lot more questions, uh, and I, we also want to make sure that everyone has time to get their books and everything signed. We end all of our interviews with nine really quick questions for nine. the professional book nerds, okay. so we call them the Nerd Nine because we like alliteration. Uh, so these are rapid fire, and then we're going to wrap up, so no, not too much thought on these. So the first one is, what's the last book you finished? The last book I finished was a book called Absolutely American. It was uh, a Rolling Stone reporter writing about West Point. What is your favorite place to read? On my... Well, I've, in my apartment, I've got three sofas, and the, uh, there's one of them is eight feet long, which is long enough for me to lie down completely horizontally, and so that is the place. Other than black coffee, what's your guilty pleasure? Uh, Dom Perignon Champagne, preferably 2002 vintage. What's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Nowhere. I'm, I'm done with traveling. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite holiday? Favorite holiday? Mm -hmm. uh, no. How about a favorite movie? Favorite movie, I love, uh, speaking as a writer, mm -hmm. I love Seven. You know that movie? Yeah. It's yes. a good one. And I'll tell you why, just not to make it rapid fire, but sure. to a writer, you're watching Seven and you get the hang of it pretty quick. Oh, yeah, okay, these are a series of crimes about the seven deadly sins. And then at some point, about two thirds of the way through, you think, oh my God, the way they should finish this off is to combine these two with this big scene at the end. But of course they won't do that because they, you know, they couldn't possibly get away with it. And they do. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. That's the right answer. Uh, <laughs> it's a Jill and I thing. Uh, she's a cat person, I'm a dog person. My, da my daughter's a professional dog trainer. So yeah. I, 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 I may have known the answer to that before I asked it. Uh, favorite food? Favorite food? Uh, you know, this sounds sad, but I don't like food. <laughs> okay, well, this is going to be a terrible last question then. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you choose? Oh, well, you know, I like having dinner with people because you don't pay any attention to the food. Um, <laughs> you very often don't even eat it or remember what you ate. So the perfect dinner guest. God, that's a tough one. That is a very tough one. Normally they say, you know, which six people, and that mm -hmm. allows you to spread your bets a little bit. Single most Im single person I would like to have dinner with. You know, right now, this minute, I would say Michelle Obama. That's so good. That's perfect. Right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for taking some time. Everyone, thank you for coming out and joining us today. We appreciate it.
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.